Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. Here you will find Dr. Cindy Elliser and Kat McKeever, researchers at Pacific Mammal Research, talking all about marine mammals. We will have a variety of ways to share information with you through discussing research articles and news stories, interviews with other researchers, and more. Join us to learn more about marine mammals and have some fun. Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And we're on to a journal review this uh, this time. And we picked this one um, kind of in relation to the um, unusual mortality event that happened fairly recently with gray whales. A couple, I guess it. I guess it technically ended in 2020. I thought it kind of went into 2021, but I thought it went into 2021 too. I did too, but this paper has it referenced to only 2020, so mm. I'm not sure what. It, anyway, it went through all of 2020, <laughs> and maybe maybe a tidbit into 2021. Um, but um, how important it is that we to understand to people to understand these unusual mortality events, where basically there's a, a large number of animals that die, and we don't know why. Um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, are they eating? Uh, and so this paper has to do with eating and actually compares times when they were eating well and when they weren't eating well um, to determine where they're eating, which is really important. And it has some pretty big um, conclusions from it. Mm -hmm. So it sounds really technical and crazy, which it is. There's a lot of technicality in there, but we're going to gloss over much of that. Um, but it's um, in scientific reports uh, by... Gilepi or Gilepi, hopefully I said that one of those right. I apologize uh, if not at all. Um, isotopic composition of the Eastern gray whale epidermis indicates contribution of prey outside of Arctic feeding grounds. So they, spoilers, <laughs> they, they kind of tell you the big punchline in the title. Um, but let's go over just real quickly, gray whale feeding habits in the first place so that this will make sense as to why this is such a big deal. Um, so let's see, uh, I have the section here. So gray whales are capital breeders. I wonder what, where the capital comes from. Um, I think, well, I think it's something to do with the investment up front. So it's, oh, right. Cause um, yes, cause a cap, uh, capital build or like to, um, fundraise for a capital thing would be like putting everything into one big building. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so they eat, they eat food and then they store it in their blubber and their skin. Um, but basically what gray whales do is from October to January, they migrate to Baja, California, Mexico. Um, and then they conceive and um, uh, in December to March, then of course we're talking about females here. <laughs> the males help out obviously, but um, so they conceive during December to March, then the pregnant females migrate. Can you imagine being pregnant and migrating that long? They have one of the tedious. <laughs> that would be awful. To say the least. <laughs> I guess the, the ride up there wouldn't be that bad. It's the ride back really when you're really pregnant. But, um, October to January, they migrate, uh, I'm oh, sorry. Um, from March to April, they, um, migrate up to, um, eat basically up in the Arctic areas. Um, usually what we're talking about here is the Chichki and the Bering Seas um, in this particular case, but they go up there to fatten up, right? Get their energetic supply up. Then they'll go back down to the breeding grounds from October to December. And that's during the last stages of pregnancy. So they're full term basically at that point migrating all the way back to give birth in the breeding grounds in um, Baja, California, Mexico. 
So the last section is birth and lactation and from January to April, which again, which they would then conceive again, at, at, depending on when they, what their, how often they, their interbirth interval, interval there. Um, so January to April, they give birth and they're, and they're lactating. Um, and then the calves do their first migration that April to June. Um, so also imagine being just born. You're like four months old-ish. And you're like, let's go on a thousands of, me of miles journey. Right. It's pretty wild. I can even get my son to do a mile hike. <laughs> 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 that so what that means is that um basically what is traditionally thought is that gray whales and, and many baleen whales only feed in the arctic or the antarctic depending on which hemisphere you're in um, and they oh that's the only time they eat they fast the rest of the time so anytime they're down in the breeding grounds they are fasting when they're traveling they're fasting so it, it makes this whole capital breeding thing even crazier where you're putting all this energy, getting it from one place and then giving birth and lactating and migrating without food. Um, yeah. But <laughs> that's what we thought. Uh, and so we're going to get into why um, we may not think that anymore. Um, but this also means that the, um, the calf birth and survival correlates with the success of the pregnant female's feeding season. So again, if, if most of it's coming from when she was up in the north, it's really important because that's the food that she's going to be feeding herself with and then feeding her calf with um, once it's born. Um, so it's very, very important. Um, and so that's why it's important for us to understand where and when and how often they're eating these uh, pregnant females or these um, reproductively active females. And we've talked on other podcasts too about the costs of, you know, being pregnant and lactating and how much more food you have to consume during those periods of time. So just to kind of put that in perspective, you know, like it's, it's, it's not like, like Cindy said, it's not just about feeding herself at this point. She's trying to feed the growing calf and then also have enough reserves left to feed the calf itself once it has been born through her milk. And especially in the first few weeks and months of life, especially for these large baleen whales, um, they need very high fat milk um, in order to get all of the energy and um, I guess growth impact that they need at that young age to be able to survive that migration. So I it's mean, a very costly input from the mother, um, especially at that latter term of pregnancy and then um, giving birth. Yeah, so I mean, I guess they're, they're kind of an opposite spectrum of the harbor porpoise that they're, they're both extremely, it takes a lot of energy whether you're having them every year or you're traveling you know with the harbor purposes or you're traveling um that far on reserves mm -hmm. uh, and feeding that calf so there's uh different ways of doing it um each having their own difficulties um and so with that as we've kind of alluded to here those the food influences the abundance of a population and reproductive timing and output so how again do those calves does he, does he get a full pregnancy do they give birth to a live calf? Do Does that calf survive? Um, and it has a lot to do with how much food and good nutrients the female has to give it. Um, so there was, as I said, the UME in 2019, 2020. Uh, there was another UME, that's the unusual mortality event in 1999 and 2001. <clears throat> um, and this is correlated with increased strandings, right? So we had, we had so many in our area up in the Salish Sea 
that they were asking private citizens if they could beach the dead whale on their private beach because <laughs> we didn't have places to put them so that they could do a necropsy and then you know dispose of the thing. Um, they are correlated with poor body condition. Many of those animals just look like they were starving. <clears throat> um, decreased number of calves um, and increased feeding in areas outside of those common feeding grounds. So we do know that they they will feed outside of those areas. Right? They, there's a specific group that feeds along the Pacific, um, the Pacific Coast Feeding Group, I believe it's called. Um, and then there's ones that come in to, into the Salish Sea uh, and they're called the Sounders. Um, and so we do know that there are some individuals that feed outside of those Arctic feeding grounds, but um, how much we don't, um, don't know for sure. Um, and so they thought, the thought of these UMEs is that there was variations in the prey in the Bering and the Chishki Seas were thought to be the cause. Because again, we think that that's the only place that they really get the majority of their food. All these other side pockets they go to is like transitory and, and you know, not that often. So, right. It's like stopping at a gas station when you're on a road trip to grab a snack. You know, you're not going to eat your entire diet, hopefully, from the gas station food. Right. Which my son figured out on a road trip that you should not eat that many snacks from, <laughs> from those on, on his migration from one state to another. Um, so, yeah, you're not going to eat, you're not going to get your nutrients from the bag of Cheetos that you picked up from the store. Um, right. So, uh, so, um, that's kind of the backstory of why this is an important thing to understand and that we're realizing that maybe the Arctic is not the only place that these animals are eating, but then also why, um, why are they needing to feed other places or has it always been a part of the thing? Um, so, uh, I, I knew this, but didn't realize how, how much, um, that these, that Gray whales are a little bit different than other baleen whales in that they have a, a wider array of foraging techniques um, than the rest of them. Um, they found 19 different genera of invertebrates. So that's not even different, 19 different species. That's 19 different of the genus. So that's a, another step back in the taxonomy. So that's just a huge amount of invertebrates that include amphipods. That's You'll hear that term a lot. We're going to talk about amphipods quite a bit. They're little, um, oh, all these are little tiny crustacean-like creatures. Um, polychaetes, which are worms, decapods, isopods, sponges, hydrozoas, and many others that they didn't list. Um, and then they also found them to eat swarming species, which I thought was a really fun term. <laughs> Think of like bees swarming, but um, so things like Oh, and I don't know. Do you know what this one is? The cumations? Yeah. No. I meant to look gonna, that up. I was gonna. Yeah, me too. Let me look it up right now. Okay, you look it up. I'll tell them the rest of them. Uh, mycids, okay. krill, shrimp, mobile amphipods, um, shoals of sardines and anchovies. Um, and remember, gray whales generally are benthic feeders, so they're feeding on the sea floor where they take in mud and water, um, scoop it all up, creating these big trenches, push out the mud and the water, and they keep all those stuff from the bottom. So the fact that they're also eating things in the water column, like other larger baleen whales, is interesting. So Chumacea are a small, is an order of small marine crustaceans, occasionally called hooded shrimp or comma shrimp due to their unique body shape. Comma shrimp? Comma, as in like the yeah, comma, the comma. Of a, Yeah, that's funny. I mean, I, I get it why the shape would be that, but that's such a like, I've been named after a punctuation mark. <laughs> Live in soft bottoms such as mud and sand. So that makes okay. sense. Cool. 
Interesting. So they eat those. Um, but they're all kind of similar, right? They're all these like smaller crustaceans, whether they're in the ground or in the water column, like shrimp and krill. Um, so the air, the uh, area that they're looking at in this paper is off of uh, the west coast of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, um, in particular, um, because that's a what they call a tertiary instead of a primary feeding ground like the Bering and the Shishki Seas. Uh, the ter tertiary feeding grounds, these kind of transitory uh, gas station stop offs. Um, Vancouver Island, BC, as well as the coastal Oregon and Northern California areas. We do know that they, we've seen them um, be there before. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, they can switch, which I thought was interesting, from feeding on planktonic, which are those ones that are in the water column, like the mycids and um, shrimp and stuff like that, to the benthic, which are mainly the amphipods. So they have the ability to do both feeding strategies, which is odd like blue whales i didn't i actually didn't know that i thought yeah. that they were exclusively benthic feeders i thought so too i didn't realize that they ate in the water column and even uh recently we, we saw that picture of a gray whale doing like plank like feeding in the water column um down in california and i was like what are you doing yeah <laughs> why Super cool. um, but apparently they can do it which is handy for them yeah i mean i guess if you're gonna if you're gonna vary your strategies you have more options right yeah Right, and, you know, we always talk, we talked about that before too in other podcasts. Right, the, the more um, singular you are in what you eat or how you eat it, the harder it is going to be if something happens to that food source. So the fact that they can switch is pretty interesting. Um, but then also, then why don't they? There's certain ones that really we only see doing the benthic feeding versus others. Like, is there individual differences? I mean, so many questions. <laughs> um, but I, I digress. <laughs> um, and there has been molecular evidence. So they've looked at uh, um, I'm genetics and other things um, that says that they can feed in breeding areas. And there's been some observations of this as well, but again, how much of that occurs? And we really thought that they don't, they don't feed there. But mm -hmm. For my whole, you know, decades worth of being in this field, that was like the thing, right? They don't feed there, they feed there, they feed in the Arctic, they don't feed while they're down there and that's what they do. Um, and so, um, one thing that's hard to, especially with these whales, is it's hard to identify when they're pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. like, we can't just go there and be like, here, let me do an exam, <laughs> if you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Just doing a quick ultrasound here while you're swimming by. Right, no problem. And so they do now, and like, especially with the orcas, you know, they do the photograph, I can't ever say it, right? You got it, you got it. Photogrammetry? Sure, yes, yes I'm pretty sure that's correct. Anyway, they take pictures and they look at the width of the animal, and now we can and determine more late stage pregnancy, but we don't know about the earlier stages generally. Um, and so these are kind of what they call cryptic, cryptic life stages. Um, so when they're um, pregnant. Um, and so the idea here is um, that they can use carbon and nitrogen stable isotopes in the epidermis, so in the skin, um, that can be used to indirectly look at that, um, that's that life stage. Uh, and these, so small amount of chemistry here. <laughs> Isotope <laughs> is uh, like this really at carbon and nitrogen. So every, almost every element has different isotopes, um, which are just the same element, just different number of neutrons in the, in the atom. Uh, and so, and every element is made up of a certain amount of those isotopes. So like 70% of this isotope and 20% of this and 10% of that in the world. 
Um, and so we can we know these kind of values and we know where they um, different trophic levels, basically what layer of uh, level of food you're eating in the in the environment has distinct isotope ratios that they can look at. So if you if they find this particular amount of isotope, they can say, oh, it was feeding on krill or it was feeding on larger fish that were higher up in the food chain or it was feeding higher up even than that. So these isotopes are, are a more stable way for them to be able to look at, uh, indirectly look at what they're eating and when they're eating it and how often, how much they're eating it, that kind of thing. And they vary, these isotope ratios vary between locations. So they can also see where the animals are feeding, which is very important. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most important things about that is it varies predictably. So it's right. not, we're not guessing, we're able to know like, okay, this consistently changes due to water temperature or the nutrients that are found in those different locations. And we, we can very clearly plot that, which is super helpful. Right. And that varies with longitude. So you can like, like you said, very clearly plot. This is where they ate. That's where they ate. Uh, latitude. Oh, uh, did I? Oh yeah. I put longitude. <laughs> kidding. One of the things, you know, up and down. The other one, <laughs> the other one, the other line that goes across the world invisibly. Um, so you can look at the trophic levels that they're eating and you can look at the movements, which is really Wild. Well, exactly what, yeah, it's, it's crazy <laughs> that you can get microscopic things inside, uh, you know, atoms of, of elements to find out this information. It's fantastic. Um, so the epidermis, they chose the epidermis, uh, because it's good because it continually grows and gets replaced. So you, you have a, an archival timeline. Of right, it's almost like tree rings, like layers of layers of it on top of one another. Right. Yeah, it's like going through the rock layers that you can tell time, you know, of the world. Of the right. Right. Um, so it's a seventy-day archive of the isotopic composition and put in those three layers. Um, and so the values in each layer reflect the diet over a specific time during that tissue growth. So it really allows you to pinpoint what's going on, um, since you know when you took the sample. Mm -hmm. and how far back and what you know if you took a sample when the animal just gave birth or just after that or had a calf then you know those last 70 days with that last you know month and uh, two months ish of, of pregnancy um so and they've done um they've done some of this kind of work on other um larger baleen whales blues humpback sperms and fins um, looking at the timing of feeding and the seasonal and, and regional movements, they've been able to use this um, for that. They also have seen another research that um, uh, there's variations in lactating moms and calves. So again, you can correlate with those life events. Um, so all that combined, they're like, we can look at this to look at the origin of the energy sources used by pregnant and lactating uh, and then calves as well. Um, and they're looking at, there's three layers, but they're basically looking at the newest and the oldest layer um, to do their comparisons. Mm -hmm. um, so they had three hypotheses. One is that successful moms that give birth and lactated should have an increased proportion of the benthic amphipods from the Bering Sea, right? That's the original hypothesis that they eat there, they don't eat other places. So they should have most everything from there. The second hypothesis was that the these, those tertiary food sources would not impact the values of the isotopes ratios um, in lactating females. Um, because again, it shouldn't change much because you're not going to pick up that bag of Cheetos in your diet 
Like <laughs> if there's someone right, exactly. That's why, like, yeah, people talk about like it's more what you're eating consistently than it is what you're just like grabbing once in a blue moon. You know, that really doesn't make that much of a difference. Exactly. Um, and then um, resource partitioning, right? So where they were eating would not be um, dependent on which layer was analyzed because um, they're fasting at the end of, you know, supposedly fasting in the end of pre pregnancy and lactation. So the the ratios that are in those two layers should be the same because they should only have been eaten or gotten from up in the Arctic. Right. Basically. So that's that's the backstory. Um, we're gonna head into the methods. And again, like I said, there's lots of technical stuff in here. Um, some sections I was just like, I read it and I'm like, okay, so there's one sentence from there that we're gonna- <laughs> <laughs> We really need to go over here. Right. Which, and again, if like, you're, oh, I was just gonna say, if you're ever interested to read this, like if you really want to nerd out on some of these more technical methods sections, please do. I mean, part of us sharing these are, you know, we would love for you guys to look up the papers yourselves and dive into that. And if that's something that really appeals to you, go for it. But we also wanna make it as easy as possible to get to the, the root of what they're really doing and just really pare it down in case you don't want to go back there. So, right. exactly. And then some of like with this stuff, I'm like, I know isotope stuff, but like some of the details I'm like, mm, Okay, that's yeah, true. Over, it's not my forte. <laughs> over my head, yeah. Um, so uh, they did biopsies, and the, you know, the first part of the methods was that they, it was legally obtained. Um, they uh, went through the Mexican Secretariat of Environment and Natural Resources. They have sampling permits because also generally you're, you're you generally don't target calves and pregnant females for things because mm -hmm. it can have a bigger impact on survival. But in this case, that's what they need to look at and because we need to know how they're surviving. Um, so it was very important that they had these because they they were doing the uh, biopsies in the Ojo de Liebre, Liebre uh, Lagoon in Baja, California, Mexico. Um, so they sampled these lactating moms and calves uh, in February, 2011, and then 2018, February, 2018, and then January and March of 2019. So it's, I thought it was interesting that it was a kind of varied um, years, right? There was a- Yeah, a they gap. had quite a long gap between that first sampling and the, um, the 2011 and 2018 sampling yeah. events. And, but that gives them a, a kind of before, uh, uh, 2011 was, was, was basically a good year of good, good calves and feeding. And then 2018, 2019 was that beginning of that, the, um, the UME. So mm -hmm. it gives them an ability to compare a good year and bad years. <clears throat> Um, so they did photo ID and focal follows. Focal follows means they pick one animal and they follow it around and observe what they're doing and do the biopsy um, in all years except 2011, but they didn't really explain why that was. I'm wondering if 2011 was maybe some samples that they had handy yeah. um, that they might've collected before actually like wanting to do this study. And so we're able to use it as a comparison, but perhaps don't have all the, quite the same level of detail. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, there there are there is other parts of the study too that used samples that were already gotten for other other reasons, which is is great, right? That's why you have them and you keep those samples because you might be able to use them ten years later for something that you didn't think about when you collected them. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I thought it was good. So they they either use a five meter long pole, <laughs> the biopsy point at the end. So that's like fifteen foot pole. So imagine being on the front of a deck and like holding out this fifteen foot pole <laughs> it's tricky <laughs> it's tricky trying to keep that thing up right 
Um, so they did that, and then uh, in other other years, uh, they had actually had a crossbow um, with the biopsy. And I actually got to do that in the. I didn't. I didn't get to do it. I was on the boat with somebody who was trained to do it. Um, but we were getting uh, blubber samples from humpback whales in Hawaii, uh, and he used a crossbow at, at the at the bow um, to be able to get those. And generally, they, the animals generally don't really feel it, or they'll, they'll maybe twitch a little bit. But it's going to the blubber, which doesn't have a whole lot of uh, nerve endings. <clears throat> so they are able to get that, and they get it from the dorsal area, basically the peduncle area, kind of the back and peduncle, the area just behind the dorsal fin and the fluke. So the kind of the tail stock area. Um, and there's a lot of more details, but they basically stored it in ice and then they put it in liquid nitrogen and froze it at minus 80 degrees Celsius. Pretty much anything with genetics or molecular analysis is frozen at minus 80 degrees. I don't know why that magic number. But we're grateful to whoever figured out that it was the right. magic number. Thank you to that person. <laughs> the, the poop that we collected in, uh, in the Bahamas, minus 80 degrees. So it's apparently the perfect temperature to freeze things for a long time. Hmm. Um, and then, so they also then to be able to compare the ratios that they are getting from the animals, they need to compare those to prey samples, right? So they need to get the isotopic ratios from the prey at those different places to be able to compare them. So they did, um, they collected samples from the Bering Sea and then the west uh, of Vancouver Island. Um, and these, I believe all of them were, yeah, all of them were from uh, previous um, expeditions, except for the ones in that they collected in the Oho uh, Lagoon in the breeding grounds. Mm -hmm. So again, this is a great thing where the collaborations, right? So they they've already collected it from these for this other study or whatever, and they go, "Hey, could we use some of these samples to do this to this um, to, uh, thing?" So getting to use one sample for many things um, is great. Um, same thing; they stored them in minus eight degrees degrees Celsius. <laughs> It must be, we'll have to ask one of our genetics friends. I think it's probably something to do with the, like what the um, the DNA or something or the, right. the actual like isotopes themselves actually freeze at so that you can get the information you need from it. Without degrading. Yeah, I should ask yeah that's gotta be some, that's well. gotta be a freezing point of something within the within the, the genetic material itself. Right, it keeps it stable. Yep. Um, let's see, so they, in the Bering Sea, they made sure they got a, a wide range from inshore to offshore so that they could make sure that they were capturing, you know, wherever the animals ate, um, depending. Um, and then in Vancouver, uh, so the Bering Sea also, they can click it from pretty much wherever along there because that's where all of them feed. So it's, it, it, the location doesn't matter quite as much. But with Vancouver and the Oho Lagoons, you need to make sure you're, you're collecting where the animals had eaten. Um, so you know that those are the animals that they're most likely eating. Um, in Vancouver, they collected them from where they saw them feeding in 2002. So again, it's a time difference here, which we'll talk about later. But um, and then in 2018 for the Oho Lagoon, they where they saw them feeding there as well. Yeah. Um, and so this is one. Okay. So then they held this whole section on stable isotopes, and I just said they cut the sample and they got the three layers, and then they send it off to labs. <laughs> Pretty much, I think that's all we need to cover there. Yeah. Um, and some really smart, special people uh, that know how to do all that got the isotopes out of there. Yeah. So again, a collaboration, right? Many of us <laughs> that are studying these animals collect the material, but we don't know how to do all that. So we have to send it to our <laughs> colleagues to finish and it. And we appreciate them. We do, because <laughs> I would be lost. 
Um, so then they, the other thing they wanted to look at was um, the composition of what's in the blood in the placenta. So what's coming kind of directly from the mother versus what was in the milk that's being given um, later to the calf versus directly from the mother. Um, and so this, these va the values that they would get here would show the transition from gestation to lactation. So is there, um, you know, basically, are, are is it only, only from the Arctic all the way through, or are they picking up these uh, food sources other places where maybe gestation was from the Arctic, but then when they had the calf and is lactating now, some of that food is now coming from either Vancouver Island or the Ojo Lagoons, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought this was interesting that the calf should be feeding on one trophic level higher than the female because she's catabolizing, breaking down her own tissue to feed the calf, mm, mm -hmm. which I thought was like, oh, I didn't it's even. really interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> very cool. I mean, it makes total sense, but it's, it's interesting. It make, yeah. You don't think about pregnant females, like breaking down your own tissue to feed it, but you yeah. do. Yep. But sure we, do. Yeah, um, so and I will say for this one specifically, because obviously it's really hard to get those tissues um, from the animals themselves, you know, finding placental blood or milk from a, a female whale that's lactating is, um, as you would imagine, extremely difficult to come by. Um, so they did, they basically calculated these ones using an, an equation. So they basically did like a, a formulaic equation that they could use to predict those values because obviously we don't necessarily have access to those um directly from the animals right yeah so there's uh along with the it's a good segue into the last section um there's a lot of math involved here. yeah lots understandably of, yeah and there's lots of models so basically what they're doing is is putting this data that they have in and then putting out models to predict what is most likely reason we got this particular ratio is it because that they mm -hmm. had most of it from the, from the Arctic or most of it from somewhere else, but they're using these mixed models to be able to predict, um, you know, why they got those results. So, um, so they did their stats in R, they used linear mixed model, mixed effects models, they used Bayesian stable isotope mixing models um, to, to, to figure out what the relative contribution is of different prey from different areas, um, and then between calves and moms. Uh, and then general linear mix models um, to test the differences in source in the contributions of different sources of food. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about that. There's lots of yep. That. I think that's enough. <laughs> so with that, we will take a quick break and we'll be back for the results in just a sec. All right, we are back and now we'll dive into the results. Um, and so they had 20 different mother calf pairs that were linked, right? The actual mom and calf they knew together. And then five lactating females and 14 calves that were by themselves. Um, so a pretty good, good amount really for this kind yeah. of. Yeah. Especially for, again, like finding those pairs. I think that was a pretty, pretty good number. Yeah. And they had one that they resampled, which was really interesting. That's really cool. See a couple months difference. What, what there, if there were any differences. Mm -hmm. um so in these models right so we've talked about models before but you basically put in a, a, a bunch of different attributes that you think would be important in the results that you're getting um to see which ones are actually significant which ones account for the variance that you're seeing the most so um 
for the carbon, they looked, they saw the layers, which is which layer of the epidermis it was in, um, the age of the animal, and then the year and month that it was um, was collected was important. And then in nitrogen, interestingly, it was the layers, the age, the year and month, and then the layer and age interaction. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's like these each have their own interaction or, you know, influence on the, the results, but sometimes two of them interact with each other to complicate things. <laughs> right. Which makes sense. I mean, when you just think about the world at large and just how many things on their own intentionally aren't necessarily that, that dramatic, but then you put them together and they create this totally different scenario. So it does, it does make sense to be able to to look at some of these things. And I think that's where modeling really goes on to a, a whole nother level of like being able to look at some of these interactions. Yeah. Which you, and again, like you do, you eat this or you eat that or you do this or you do that. But then if you do the two things together, it could be a completely different result. So um, that's important mm -hmm. to understand mm -hmm. for sure. Um, so uh, just some statistical stuff. The, the data is not normally distributed, which is pretty common in observational studies and, and wild animal studies. Um, so in order to have more confidence in the results, they did some statistical workings um, that lowered the importance of the outliers, those atypical values that are outside of like, why is that there? There's always going to be those weirdos that just pop out and do something crazy, but that's not uh, representative of the population. So they reduced the importance of those so that we can really get to the core of like, what's the majority of the population doing? Um, they did find significant differences in the mother-calf pairs between the carbon and nitrogen um, ratios. Um, and then the calves, um, the calf values, the females and calves varied between the years. So 2011 and 2019, right? That's the, the good year and the bad year, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that for carbon, um, for nitrogen, there was significant variation for all the years for females, but for calves, it was only in 2011. And the, I don't think that's really too uncommon. There's going to be quite a bit of variation in general, with, especially with individual preferences, mm -hmm. of who's eating what and where, and then who you're sampling, right? Right. It could be a, maybe you only got the ones that were doing this one certain thing, or you got right. a whole bunch of different options. Um, so there was some variance, um, but what's the, um, the, most interesting thing is, again, with the spoiler with the title, um, that the, the probability of the con contribution of the Bering Sea amphipods, which is what we thought they basically only ate, was not the highest in all females. So it's like, <laughs> but what I mean, I honestly, like, if you know anything about gray whales, like, that's a huge, that's a huge mic drop. Like, right. if you know anything about gray whales, life history for all of us, we're like, wait, wait. <laughs> like, no, you said it wasn't. Wait, excuse me, can you say that again? <laughs> like, I'm very confused. I've been taught for decades, you know, that that's that's where they eat and that's it. Okay. That's where they get their food. Um, crazy. So the fact that, and it wasn't just like the majority of them, it was all of them, all the females. And over two years that were different in prey, right? So maybe you would think like, oh, it's totally obvious for the, the UME years when they're, they obviously need to feed other places because something happened. Um, 
but it happened in the 2011 years too. So they're not just eating there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lactating females had a high variation in the contribution of different food sources within the layers. Um, only 13% had the Bering Sea as the most food source. Wow. It's like nothing in comparison. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Considering we thought it would have more likely been like 93%. Right. That's that's what we were including the including the researchers doing this paper. That's what we were yeah. all expecting. Yeah. They they were certainly that that first hypothesis was not like we're definitely gonna that this is the hypothesis we're putting out to prove it wrong. We were like, oh, this is what we should find. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um yeah. Vancouver Island had 60% that were that was the, the most food source that they had. Um, and then 26% that were both, right? So there was a fair amount of equal amounts of Bering and um, Vancouver Island. Um, and then they had some low percentage from the uh, Ojo Lagoons, less than 20%. But the fact that there's even that much, it again, mm-hmm. is super surprising. We thought they didn't eat there. We thought they didn't at all. Yeah. Um, and then it was interesting that they had connection between whatever type of food they were eating in the Arctic is the type of food that they ate in the lagoons. So if they were feeding on amphipods in the Arctic, they fed on amphipods in the lagoon. If it was polychaetes in the Arctic, it was polychaetes in the Oho lagoon, which- So interesting. I know. Like, is that because they're purposely choosing those? Or is it because there's some wider environmental effect that like fast, that those populations were just higher that year so that it just happened to work out? Yeah. It's really interesting. And so I go to, I'm like, how are they determining what they're eating in all that mud? Like, it's one thing if you can see it in the water column and go, I'm going to eat that. Right. Well, and that's where I guess that would lend itself then to maybe being a wider environmental thing if they're not necessarily, potentially not necessarily choosing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really fascinating. It's crazy. I mean, maybe they have some uncanny ability to know what's in <laughs> maybe who knows we thought we knew everything i know we know everything but we thought we knew a lot about what these animals are doing (laughs) apparently they're like "Mm -hmm, they don't sorry (laughs) (laughs) um so the the going back to the placental blood versus the milk um there was the highest in the bering sea amphipods and vancouver island mycids um and the proportion from the lagoons varied with individuals and some had some had greater than 20 percent. so there was Again, some of that food is coming from not the Arctic that's going into the latter part of gestation and lactation. So when the animals uh, catch are after the born. Um, so in the, the last like linear model that they did, um, the contribution, the, the, the difference in the contribution of the Bering versus the Vancouver Island areas, um, it was the layers of the uh, epidermis, age, and the year month, and then the interaction of the layers and age. But that was only for the bearing only. So it's basically saying what we said earlier, where there is that that variance, um, but mainly having to do with when it was taken, what layer it's in, and the age of the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> uh, but the bearing C was estimated higher for the milk versus the blood, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Um, and then uh, Vancouver was estimated higher for the blood versus the milk. So it, Which is interesting because to me, it would almost be backwards it, than what you would expect. Exactly. You would think that Vancouver would be in the milk 
and the blood would be the Arctic because that would be the gestation that they would be going down. And then it would be milk but from Vancouver because they fed later. I wonder, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, is there, would there be a way to sort of partition? Like if that's the higher nutrient level, like if you're getting more nutrients in one space and then you like lay it down somewhere else where you access it later. I don't know. Oh, versus yeah, yeah. actually like giving giving that directly to the placenta, you know what I mean? Like is there a way that they could store those nutrients for right. milk versus placental crossover? Yeah, well, yeah, because we're I don't know. I'm just here. wondering. Yeah, no, I mean it makes sense. There's certain parts of your body that you store fat and store stuff in. Is there particular ones that you're using um for that that if the Arctic one got stored there then that gets used first for the right. yeah that's i don't know i don't know just we're, all, we're just totally thoughts. like out on them here but it's just fun <laughs> like that. thought experiment <laughs> but the fact that i mean it, it, that a lot of this is backwards from what we thought you know or that you would logically think um for the oho lagoon um only layer was significant um so that kind of makes sense as to which it's likely going to be in one layer versus the other because it's being used right away um, mm -hmm. there. Um, um, the, uh, how much the Varying Sea in the Vancouver um, Island area contributed varied significantly among all the groups. Um, and then the probability of prey contribution from the OHO uh, increased significantly between the layers and between blood and milk. Uh, and there was an indication of how long the animals were there is linked to that hmm. um so you know what how much they're eating there and then how much gets into the milk versus the blood right so how long are you there when you're gestating and if you're feeding some you're gonna it's gonna go into the gestation part but maybe then not be there for the milk if you don't eat after the baby's born that kind of thing right so there's yeah. a links there so those are the results um so that's kind of mind-blowing <laughs> at least yeah what we've known Yep. So, um, you know, I, one of the biggest highlights of this paper is how important this tool can be for conservation, right? That we can indirectly figure out all this information that is vital to understanding what we need to do to protect them, right? So previously we're like, well, we just need to protect the Arctic because that's where they're feeding and obviously places where they can breed, but we don't need to worry about their food source there. But this changes everything. Mm -hmm. Like you have to there's at least three different ecosystems that you now have to protect for their food source. Right. And that's just for one, for one group of gray whales. I mean, that's not for gray whale, gray whales worldwide at all, you know, right. this is just speaking about the Eastern gray whale population. Right. And remember we're talking about the Eastern gray whale population, which is the Western part of the United States. Yes. Very confusing. Cause they are only found in the Pacific. Right. Poor Atlantic gray whales. Except for that one weirdo that went all the way over to the Atlantic. That's true. Good point. So yeah, maybe we'll see more there. Who knows? Yeah. But yes, good point. We forgot to mention that we are specifically talking about these great whales. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in particular. Um, but this information can be important for now looking at the Western great whales because if they're mm -hmm. doing it over here, it's likely they're probably doing it over there. Um, mm -hmm. So important for their conservation. Um, so their hypothesis, first hypothesis was not supported. Um, Bering Sea was not the most important food source, which is just crazy. Um, even with good calving years, the Vancouver Island mycids were more important to those pregnant and lactating females. So this area that we did not previously think was important. Um, 
And then the, as I mentioned just briefly before, the proportion of um, the isotopes from the Ojo Lagoon increased with the time spent in the lagoon. So that makes sense. If you're there longer, you're probably gonna have to try to find some food if you're gonna do that, since we now know they do. Um, and this was both in high and low cat years. So they're doing it regardless of it being uh, difficult, a difficult year. Right. Um, so they speculate basically with this, the kind of the other big mind blower thing is that they, that gray whales, they speculate that gray whales continually feed during reproduction. And so is this only the females, right? Do the males feed? I was just going to say, right. Cause that's a good question. Cause maybe the males are doing something totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they are actually only feeding in the Arctic because they don't have to worry about making sperm is cheap. So they don't really have to, <laughs> to, to do much there. So they don't have to worry about this long, you know, this whole year long of growing a baby and then giving birth and then lactating. So maybe mm -hmm. what we known previously, we had just only looked at males and mm -hmm. there's a difference. Which I guess if, especially depending on the sampling type, if you are more disposed to sample males because you are wanting to make sure that you're protecting the females and calves, that we would then be biased towards sampling males. Right. So that would actually make sense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, that's when, when we're trying to protect them, but then maybe not getting the information that they need. You know, it's important for us to step back and say, okay, what are the risks of getting this information from these animals versus not? Right. What does that mean? Yeah. So this is a good, a good uh, indication of that. Um, and so they did see that feeding patterns vary with individuals. So again, this goes back to that plasticity. The more ability you have to change what you were doing, the better you are going to be in the long term. Yeah. Especially if you have to raise a baby and give birth. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> um, they were, you know, also mentioned, so if they're only feeding the Arctic as they as previously thought, the values of the carbon and nitrogen should be the same over all individuals. Um, and so this was, um, they showed that the variance of carbon and nitrogen um, increases from the outer to the inner layer. And so there's other things than gestation and lactation that are influencing this. So it's not just that, and they're not all um, fasting the same way. Yeah. Um, or they're, they're all, yeah, they're all doing the same, but it's not just, it's, those aren't the only things that are causing these differences. There's other things that are occurring, um, that are, um, influencing because they're not just feeding there and then everything's the same, right? They're right. feeding in different places. Um, and so therefore there's those different, uh, different ratios and different influences. Yeah. I honestly, I feel like one of the biggest things to take away from this is just how individual gray whales are. Mm -hmm. Like, it's crazy. I honestly, like, this is a whole new level of, like, understanding for, for me personally. I'm just like, wow, I had no idea that they were this different right. amongst yeah. individuals. So I, interesting. Yeah. And they kept bringing it up. And I was just like, I didn't realize that. I mean, mm -hmm. you'd think they're groups, you know, maybe I could see that, like, a group does this, a group does that. But yeah. it really varies quite a bit by individual. Yeah. Which is Fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so then again, they also assumed that all successful females would have the most prey in the Bering Sea, and that was not the case. Um, and again, that highlights that intra and so intra within an individual changes depending on maybe 
they spent a certain amount of time here, a certain amount of time there. Um, and then enter between individuals um, that varies um, within years and months. So even with that, once they sampled within this, uh, the mother calf that they sampled within a couple months of each other, make sure that that variation uh, as well. Um, and so they had um, four out of 25 females favored the, bear, favored the bearing, so very small percentage mm -hmm. of the total. 15 others favored the Vancouver Island mycids, and then five had both. Um, that only adds up to 24, so I'm not sure where the 25th animal is. <laughs> oh, good point. Yeah. Well, oh yeah, good point. They, did, they didn't mention, know. they. I don't know if there was a mistyping in, in one of the, in the number or something like that, but maybe someone, someone missed, missed an animal. Um, um, but each mother had a unique foraging strategy that led to the variation in the carbon nitrogen blood versus milk ratios that they were looking at. Um, so, you know, they're saying like, oh, well, you know, it's possible that they could have, um, you know, all of the animals are happen to be from the Pacific Coast feeding group, for example, that were doing weird things versus other ones, but it's kind of unlikely that they only got animals from one type of, you know, group or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so it just highlights what Kat said that, I mean, each individual female was doing something different. Like, it's absolutely fascinating. Well, and especially when you look at like other populations of whales where we kind of, you know, see these things as being quite conserved traits right like mm -hmm. how to feed is quite conserved especially when you're pregnant right. and you want to feed like this so you get the optimal energy stores and it's really interesting that this is kind of almost more of a free-for-all where it's yeah. like here's the general guidelines and then go crazy do whatever i'm gonna you want. do what i want it's it's really interesting it is no you're right and a lot of times they said that it's highly conserved and so the fact that these are just there's like throwing it to the wind i don't care i'm gonna do what i want whatever whatever i need to survive which honestly yeah. Uh, maybe a smart move at this point <laughs> yeah and I mean we have to remember that gray whale populations were highly highly hunted for a yeah. long time so I mean it's you know who knows like maybe this is even something that developed from necessity right yeah. like it's potent potentially as, as a species that came back from the brink of extinction um who knows maybe Which that influenced things makes them even more badass mm -hmm. be like look yeah you know what you try to take me out oh I don't think so <laughs> But their ability to adapt, right? And the, those yeah. are the ones that are going to survive longer than other species. And there's been, you know, other um, baleen whales have not come back as well after hunting. Yeah. Um, and that maybe this is part of the reason, which is yeah. pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> so again, the, uh, the outcomes of the study are, do not support the three hypotheses that they had and go against the traditional theories that we've always thought. Um, and again, the 2011 was a good year where they had over 2,000 couples, and they said couples, but didn't explain what couples is. I assume that means mother calf pairs. I would assume, yeah. Um, and then 2018, 2019 was a bad one with less than a thousand. So it's a 50, mm. you know, percent or 50 percent difference or 100 percent difference depending on which way you look at it. Um, but a lot of difference between the number of uh, animals that there are. <clears throat> but most, but either way, they were not feeding exclusively in the bearing. Um, which is really, really interesting. And in the good year, in the bad years, they most of them fed um, next to Vancouver Island. So mm. there probably is some indication of when they use those areas, maybe more likely during these bad times, but they are using them in every year. Right. Which is the big, the big point. Yeah. Um, so they said basically they need more data to be able to tease apart exactly when and why they're choosing to use these different areas. 
Mm -hmm. um, a brief note about a potential bias. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but the um, the price samples were from 2002. So there could be differences in the ratios over time, which the, it has been shown to occur, but they, um, I think they said they declined mainly um, in, uh, in a given area. But, um, um, and it could happen due to environmental or anthropogenic changes. So it could affect the, affect the results, but no samples uh, taken were taken during anomalously an anomalous environmental variable years. Um, and the stats had kind of a normal variation. So they, they still feel pretty confident in the result that even if there was a slight change from 2002 to 2011 or 2020, it wouldn't be large enough to negate what they found in the study. So, right. but it was an important thing that they noted that like, hey, mm -hmm. we realize this is a, a thing. Yeah. Um, um, and so then they need to, you know, get more samples from across years to account for the time differences um, like that. So if we had them every year, we could see if this the same thing every year, then it doesn't, that, that difference of this in this study where there's the prey versus the samples taken in quite a bit different, um, they could correlate with that and say like, okay, no, we're still seeing the same thing year after year after year. That didn't make um, uh, an influence. Um, so I'm trying to, oh, breeding goats. I thought I was trying to read my notes and, and it looked like bread browns. And I feel like, wait, they don't eat bread. I know that. I know that for a fact. They don't eat bread. Um, so the la one of the last bigger points is that they do use uh, the breeding grounds for feeding. Um, it may not be as, sig as significant amount as the other places, but they are still eating there, which again, we, we thought they never did. Um, and with, I thought it was interesting, they were looking at omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids, mm -hmm. which is cool because the... Um, the omega-6 fatty acids are only found at lower latitudes, right? So the omega-3s they find in the upper latitudes. So if you're finding omega-6s in the blubber of these animals, it means they're feeding down there and not. Which is super cool. Again, just like all these sort of like inferential things that we can use to, right. we, we don't have to see it ourselves if we know some of these things. It's super cool. It's like, oh, well, that's there and that's only found here. So that's where you ate. <laughs> super crazy. It's like if you found out like I ate sopapillas, which is a very New Mexican thing, like then you know I ate at least somewhere in the Southwest and not anywhere else in the country for the most part because they don't exist other places generally. Yeah, yeah. So it's similar to that. Um, so the lactation for the females um, showed that the prey eaten was during gestation um, uh, from the Bering and the Vancouver Islands. The placental blood was from um, blubber from the northern feeding grounds and then prey in the lagoons. Um, and then the one mother calf care that they resampled showed the importance of polychaetes from the Oho Lagoon. So again, mm -hmm. they, that was one where they showed like, oh, they're eating the polychaetes here and then they continued to eat them the longer they were in the, in the lagoon. Mm -hmm. um, so just emphasizes the importance of the breeding lagoons as possible food sources. And then also that it's not just from the Bering Sea, right? The Vancouver Island area is also very important. Yeah. Um, and so we already talked about the, the link where they're eating amphipods in the Bering, they were eating them in the lagoons. So that's again, very interesting. We already kind of went over that. Um, but they have limited info on the food of the lagoons because nobody thought they ate there. So nobody's bothered <laughs> to look at it. <laughs> 
So to no fault for the researchers, like we were going off of, you know, collectively on what we knew about these animals. And so there was no need to look at what food that was there for them because they didn't eat them. So we do, they need, you know, quite a bit more information about the food and the animals in the lagoon that uh, to be able to tease out, you know, how important they are for the animals and, and in individuals, right? Maybe some get all the food that they need and they're not hungry. Maybe others don't and they need to snack down there. Maybe they got all their food, but they still like to snack because we're all different. And some of us like to snack more than others. <laughs> Just saying. Um, so those inter uh, individual differences are, are important. Um, uh, oh, and so they did note that um, there was that it, the, the uh, importance of polyheats uh, in the Ojo Lagoon at one point, and they did say that there was changes in the seagrass beds, and that's where the amphipods are normally found. So mm -hmm. it's possible, again, there's some environmental correlation where they were eating more polyheats that year simply because those, those um, seagrass mats were gone, so the amphipods just weren't there. Right? Yeah. So. Um, and so I did have a note here, like, are some individuals, like we talked about this a little bit before, only able to do one feeding strategy, right? Or, you know? Good, good question. Because we know that the generally as a great whale population, they can vary, but does each individual right. able to vary or is it just certain individuals within the population that do a particular thing? Because they did see that they learned that the babies learn from their mothers, mm -hmm. right? And we know that from other cetaceans as well, that there is learning happening from mother calf. Right. So that's a good question. Or like, right, do you maybe have each individual has a repertoire of strategies that they prefer, you know? Right. So where it's like, oh, I'm I'm really good at this. So I'm Yeah. And maybe have this one as a backup for when I'm not in a context to use the first one. You know, who knows? Right. That's a good question. Yeah. And you know, again, uh, uh, certain lines maybe are going to not do as well because they only do one thing and that's it. And then if they, they don't have the ability to do a second one, then they might have problems. Um, yeah. But then, oh, but then it goes, could they learn from other gray whales? Like if they're all in the same area, could, are, are some younger animals learning not just from their mothers, but from others? Right. I mean, that would, that would be smart. It would be, but can they do it? So cool. So cool. Um, this makes me want to study gray whales. I know, right? <laughs> they're just so fascinating. Like you guys are so cool. Well, like, wow. Because yeah. we're, you know, we're into the individuals, right? Knowing the individuals and being able to better understand the population. And this just highlights that because these are so, they're so varied mm -hmm. of what they can do. So um, uh, so they did find high levels of the feeding plasticity detected. Um, they may limit fasting to certain periods, right? So maybe they do fast. They just do it in different chunks instead of one whole chunk that we thought. Um, the, we do see that there's... Um, the year-to-year -year analysis, um, uh, they can detect which feeding habits are being used on high and low reproductive success years. So again, if we get more data, they can say like, oh, this is a low reproductive success year and you know, more of them did this or vice versa, mm. whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and they did, they did mention the blob, right? That big nasty um, thing in the ocean, the Pacific Ocean that was out there for a while that kind of killed a lot, a lot of uh, plankton up to fish and, and larger mammals, um, but it didn't affect them but it was seemingly, but it did um, reduce the number of calves in the following year or th there was the next year, there was a lower number of calves. So did maybe it indirectly affected them, just wasn't outright killing them. Mm -hmm. um, but again, having year yearly data would be really helpful to tease all that apart. Right. Um, 
So basically, we need to look at more than just the Bering Seas as important habitat for these animals. Um, and this information could be helpful for the, the, the endangered Western gray whale, which isn't doing quite as well as the Eastern gray whale. Mm -hmm. um, so, and they breed in Mexico as well. So um, we need to be able to look at, and this is a relatively, I'm sure it's still expensive, but relatively inexpensive and feasible way to look at this information that you can't be like, excuse me, ma'am, could I get some of your milk and some of your blood and some of your blubber? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, especially as when you're talking about a, an endangered population too, that you want to minimize, of course, like minimize your impact on them, like doing doing some of these more inferential, again, of course, you, you would need the epidermal sample, but like aside from that, right. um, you know, you can be very hands-off with the animal, which is awesome. And then, uh, and I'm sure that some of these samples were used for other analyses, right? You don't sure. need the whole sample for this one thing. So yeah. one sample can go a long way. Yeah. Um, and then it would be interesting to look at these same, same things in stranded individuals, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and males, right? We look at the males. What are they doing? Yeah. I want to, I want to know about the males. I now I'm like super curious. Yeah. Cause I, I would, it would be so neat. They're just like completely opposite and just like, uh, it would, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Like, excited to see what they're going to do in the future. Um, so that's it for that. That is um, the isotopic composition of the Eastern gray whale epidermis indicates contribution of prey outside the Arctic feeding grounds by uh, Gilepi or Gilepi uh, at all. Uh, and it is uh, open access. So I will have the link in the show notes. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. We hope you uh, had as much fun as we did with this one. And next time we'll be back with a marine mammal highlight. So check out next week. We'll have a poll up on Instagram. I'm not sure who we're going to put against each other, but there will be two good ones and we'll see who wins. Um, don't forget our um, merchandise on our website. And also uh, we'll be having some new stuff coming out soon with some new logos, which we're very excited about. So um, any, any funds that you send our way, whether they are donation or purchases, uh, goes directly back into the research that we do and this information educational stuff that we share with you now so thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week bye this was brought to you by pacific mammal research a 501c3 nonprofit organization check out our website www.pacmam.org that's p-a-c-m-a-m to learn more about us our research and the educational opportunities that we provide also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks!